Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 13, Rescue Boat. Earlier today, anxious to put up a good performance after having a whole day off, I sat beside him on top of the sandbags as we waited for our turn to fly. At 22, I felt such an old man compared with him. He looked so very young. He confessed it with a shy smile. He too was married. He'd been married a fortnight just a few days before leaving England. Sitting in his cabin in the aircraft carrier, bringing our recent reinforcements to us, he must have looked at his wife's photograph and gazed back over the wake of the ship just as I did last April. Three days ago, after delivering his Spitfire, this young pilot officer jumped down onto the Malta dust for the first time. I remember his happy face that was real achievement in his eyes. The fact that his expression changed to utter bewilderment when he realised that a battle was taking place round the aerodrome circuit was only natural, for he had never seen enemy planes before. Nevertheless, I was impressed this morning as I gave him my distilled experience of the enemy here and explained the formation and tactics we use. He seemed to grasp the essentials at once. I do not know what he was thinking as we listened to the moan of planes battling high above us, for, staring at the burnt wreckage of last night's mail plane which had been pulled clear of the runway, I was obsessed with my own thoughts. Shrapnel had exploded a tyre as the mail plane was taking off, throwing it out of control. 
Although the 13 occupants had got out alive, the mail was destroyed. The parcel of Chinese silk, together with some landscape sketches and a long letter for Diana, were burned. Perhaps the young officer was thinking about his wife. Perhaps he was grappling inwardly with his fear as we waited. If it was fear, he controlled himself very well. We watched a white spot, high in the blue, lengthen into a beautiful spiralling plume. Then the Spitfire, which had been hit in the glycol tank, attempted to land downwind and crashed through the stone walls onto the far side of the drome. Chiefy, riding by on his bicycle a few minutes later, called out to us, The pilot's all right, but he was shot through both legs. The young officer accepted this state of affairs quite normally. I felt perfectly confident that, flying as my number two on his first operational trip, he would be safe. I did not, however, anticipate the fiasco of the takeoff. As we taxied out, I was amazed by the fantastic number of Spitfires converging onto the runway as well as mine. Nevertheless, we'd had our signal, so off we went. I was turning back over the aerodrome, waiting for the rest of the squadron to come up into formation and watching two Spitfires, like toy models, taking off on the runway below. When they hit each other, the tangle of wings and slithering metal bodies disappearing into a gigantic burst of dust behind me. Were those two mine? I had no time to worry. Exile leader airborne, I called into my microphone. What orders? Exile leader, you are to all land immediately and with extreme care. A strange order. I checked it before relaying it to the rest of my aircraft. Landing through the dust and over the wreckage was tricky, but turning off the runway and twisting in my seat to watch how the new boy and the others would manage it, I found to my consternation that my Spitfires were not landing at all. They had disappeared. Hello, XR Blue One, I called to one of my section leaders. Where the devil are you? Angel 17, going up. I had no idea what was happening or who had blundered, but orders or no orders, I was not going to have my squadron, and particularly a new boy, wandering around the sky without me. I remember the astonishment on the airmen's faces as I swept past the empty dispersal pens. At full throttle, I lifted over the wreckage and pulled my Spitfire steeply upwards, with the yellow island shrinking below and a layer of clouds dropping down towards me. I called again. Hello, Blue One. Where are you now? Angels 28, about to engage. With the squadron 20,000 feet above those clouds, I knew it was quite hopeless. I would never catch them. If I had known what was going to happen to the young officer, I would have made that long climb in lonely silhouette against the cloud layer. But, and I must face it, I would have been too late anyway. My own flight was not without interest. Scanning the sky with continuous apprehension, lest I was attacked by the hordes of 109s that were being reported, I determined to patrol just below cloud height to pounce upon any enemy aircraft that might come through from on top. Hunting alone in the Malta sky is a perilous game. I chased an Italian bomber well out to sea, a crazy thing to do. By flying out to sea, the CO and I had been shot down and Ken and many others killed. With a feeling of naked vulnerability, I headed back. Suddenly, as I was recrossing the coast at St Paul's Bay, my mouth went dry. Three dots were rushing head-on towards me. Three dots, 109s, three dots with white smudges above them. Parachutes. I turned quickly to avoid those three white parachutes. Three Italians swinging to and fro and drifting southwards with the earth far below us. Circling round and round them was rather fun, for the three ice cream men, one slightly higher than the other two, appeared to go up and down like figures on a merry-go-round. As I watched them, I became aware that they were staring back at me in terror, probably thought I was playing with them, that any second I would come in to attack them with blazing machine guns or fly over the top of them to collapse their chutes as the Germans do to us. I gave them a wave. Immediate response? They all waved back, sinking towards the ground, yet jerking up and down as they waved. It was a glorious display of Italian friendliness. The lower we got, the more and more swiftly the ground came up to meet us. I edged away so that they could concentrate on their landings, for they were very nearly down on the clifftops near Dingley. A gust of wind blew them over the edge and they fell another 300 feet into the sea. I was powerless to help them, but to make sure they were safe, I dropped down from the sky and my view as I raced along the wave crests was limited to the blue-green water sliding under my wings and the tall cliff rushing past. 
There they were, three white silk stains drifting in the swirling water, a lot of splashing too. I pulled up in a steep climbing turn over the cliff brink and back across a deserted landscape to dive again for another run past. A quick glimpse revealed the three of them trying to climb up on a ledge. On the third run, I saw them all standing safe and sound. They were waving happily. Once more, patrolling over the centre of the island, I heard a radio message from Woody. Anyone short of gravy is to land. As I came down on the runway, sweeping past the wreckage, I remembered the takeoff fiasco. I taxied to my pen and switched off the engine. Are those two broken Spitfires ours? No, sir, replied the airman. Someone said they were Halfar Spits. All right, I gestured towards the tank. Have I filled up as quick as you can? The others, including the new boy, had not yet returned, so I watched the sky. A Spitfire lowering its wheels raced into the circuit. Other Spitfires were coming back, but 109s were whirling amongst them. There were long, brutal, unhesitating bursts of cannon fire. I rounded on a soldier leaning aimlessly against his bicycle. Go to G-Shelter, ask the wing commander if I can be sent up on aerodrome cover. Pedal as fast as you can. As the first Spitfire landed, I waved it into the nearest pen. Sergeant Harris, leaning from the cockpit, called out to me, Three Spits are down in the sea, perhaps more. Hurry up then, for God's sake, get your machine refuelled. The soldier, returning slowly, was doing idle twists and turns round odd lumps of rock. I ran towards him. The wing commander isn't there, he said. What did the others say? I didn't ask them. I had a frenzied desire to knock the man flat, but instead, loosing a string of oaths, I grabbed the bicycle. Hunched over the handlebars, I felt stunned by what had happened to my men. Lifting the ops from phone, I asked urgently for Woody. Woody, can I do an aerodrome cover? Have you two aircraft refuelled and rearmed? Yes. Good work. Then go as cover to the rescue boat just leaving St Paul's Bay. OK, we'll call ourselves Black Section. By the way, there are three eye ties on a ledge below the cliffs a mile northwest of Dingley. Righto, Dennis. We'll look after them. Quickly followed by Harris and oblivious of the aircraft coming into land, I controlled my racing fighter plane out along the runway, dragging it into the air. Turning viciously round the lookout tower, we swerved out over the valley. Black Section Airborne. Well done, Black Leader. Watch out for 109s. There are lots about. A long white trail across the blue waters of the bay ahead of us revealed the rescue boat bouncing out past St Paul's Island towards the open sea. It was very conspicuous with its brown cabin, yellow rescue markings on its deck and its brilliant white wake. I tried to work out the best way of defending it. The sun was dead astern of the boat, giving the enemy a tactical advantage. Hello, Black Leader. Four 109s up son of us now. They're coming into attack. It is dark and we've just arrived back at Naxar Place. Harris and I covered the rescue boat after a fashion. It was neither sunk nor damaged, but as bullets from the 109s came perilously close to it, I cannot help thinking we could have done our job better. Because we were outnumbered two to one, it was a difficult situation. If we'd each gone chasing a 109, the other two could have attacked and sunk the boat while we weren't there. So we didn't chase them. We hung about behind the stern and harried them as they came into attack. They did not succeed, but we had no spectacular success either. I don't yet know who blundered the takeoff. The aircraft that collided were certainly Halfar Spits, their squadron having been moved over to Looker for some reason or other. I have discovered that the Halfar squadron usually take off on four red lights on their own aerodrome, the same as us, so someone ought to have changed the respective signals. Of course they may have done, but I was not informed about it. I don't yet know why my boys did not respond to the order to land, nor do I know if I could have saved the young pilot officer if I had been with him at 20,000 feet. The young pilot officer was shot down. He made the error of lagging behind, of being inadequately covered by the others, shot down because, like the rest of us, he had never flown the line abreast formation before and had had no opportunity ever to practice it. Although his plane was hit, he bailed out successfully by parachute. Indeed, falling into the sea, he was the pilot for whom the rescue boat put out. He must have inflated his dinghy successfully and climbed in, but he was dead when he was picked up. From the condition of his body, it was obvious that the 109s must have come down and cannoned and machine-gunned him as he drifted helplessly. 
One by one, our companions pass from our daily experience. If we feel something of the spiritual joy that lies beyond death, we cannot grieve for the traveller who undertakes this journey. In our air fighting, we are alone. On the ground, we are too exhausted without time to get to know each other intimately. And rarely knowing each other, we cannot adequately lament the loss of what our companions might have become had they continued to live. The loss of this young officer, this bridegroom, whom I only really talked to for the first time today, makes me realise that grief is for those who are left, a man's intimate friends, his parents, his wife and his family, for them the throbbing wound in their daily lives, for something very precious has been wrenched away. I am sure that the bereaved ones will one day remember with pure compassion instead of pain, but at the moment they must be wounded with grief. The CO has just come in, looking very sprightly after his day off. I'd better tell him the news, but he speaks first. Were you covering the rescue boat, he asks me. Yes. What the devil was the matter with you? You put up a bloody poor show. Wednesday, and I'm walking along the tree-lined road towards St Paul's Bay. It seems to me that if we'd gone chasing the 109s, the CO's reaction might have been different. We might have destroyed one, perhaps two of the enemy fighters, but the boat would have been sunk by the others while we weren't there. Everyone would have said, damn shame about the boat, but you did damn well in the circumstances. The boat was not touched, but the fact is that success here is measured by the number of enemy aircraft a pilot shoots down. I may be wretchedly alone, but I'll show them. I'll make my mark somehow. According to my own standards, I'll be the best fighter pilot in the squadron. Silence on this empty road, a prison of solitude as I walk. I had hoped for a friend in the young pilot officer. I felt we could have silently supported each other in the face of the obscenities of this battle, but he's dead. When the others tell me, with thoughtless laughter, that people in Valletta did a boisterous dance round the body of the Italian impaled on the fountain, I seem to be alone in my horror and lament for humanity. Even my drawing separates me from my companions. Surely they too must be ravished by the tenderness of evening light and the wonderful lines and shapes and constructions of things. Can't they realise that it's the simple love of life that makes me want to draw? I walk slowly on. Sudden engines are rasped by machine guns. Dust flies up all around me. White scars appear on the stonework of the walls. I fling myself into the cover of the walls as two 109s leaping towards me tilt sideways over the treetops. They're banking round for a second attack. Am I the target? They're coming round, sweeping back towards me. A Bofors gun has opened up, thank God. Ascending red fireballs streak into the sky, then kick backwards in black puffs, close to the enemy planes. My God, shells bursting on the treetops, shrapnel tearing its way through the leaves, slithering into the earth beside me, thumping onto the roadway behind, clanging on the wall against which I cringe in terror. They've gone. I'm walking back towards Naxar with a beating heart and hands trembling. The fact that the landscape is empty is appalling to bear. I want to be with the other pilots. If only I could return to the companionship of a letter. I want a letter from my wife, but no letter has come. I have nothing from her pen, from her mind, or from her heart. Nothing but the photograph I carry with me. I stare at it, trying to draw some comfort from it. But without a letter, there is none. In this isolation, I am aware that strange things are happening to me. It's a peculiar sense that things have a pattern in them, a kind of parallel or repeat that something that has happened happens again, the same but different. I'm sitting on top of the sandbag pen at the opening of our taxi track. I'm wearing my May West, for we are on readiness. Thursday, May the 14th, my day to lead the squadron. For whatever the CO may think of me, we still take it in turns to lead. When we are sent off, I take another new boy up for his first operational flight. He is sitting with me, just as the young pilot officer sat with me two years ago. I've been briefing him about combat here in much the same words. Both of us stare upwards for another battle, wages invisibly in the pools of blue. I dreamed last night, 
Not the usual nightmare, but a good clear dream of aerial combat. I was completely confident. In my dream, the sky was partially covered by flat patches of white cirrus, very high up, as we climbed for height in danger of being attacked from above. We stayed under the areas of cirrus so that the enemy were in sharp silhouette above us. On the other hand, when we had thus obtained our altitude, we moved out into the blue areas to be invisible. Cat and mouse tactics, and highly successful in all the subsequent details. It was a splendid dream, and the strange thing is that the sky over the aerodrome is just the same now. If we have to take off, I know just what I'm going to do. Indeed, I may have lived this whole action already. The new officer and I, each with our own thoughts, stare upwards. The blue areas seem to palpitate in their glaring intensity of colour. I can just make out four aircraft, gold against the blue and growing steadily larger. Four Spitfires, looking as if they've had the worst of the battle up top and beating a hasty retreat, are spiralling down towards us. They swoop down over the aerodrome, and now one of them, joining the circuit, is banking leisurely round the drome, descending slowly in a medium turn. How beautiful it looks, as graceful as a bird, yellow-brown on the top surface of its elliptical wings, now pale, duck-egg blue, on the underside as it passes us and murmurs away again. Round and round, steadily getting lower, lower and lower. It's getting very low, dangerously low. I jump to my feet as it disappears behind G-Shelter. A roar of flame, a bubble of fire 50 feet high, searing its way over the grass in front of us. A monstrous trail of exploding petrol, with blackened fragments being spewed out of the bottom of it. It's plunged into the valley. It's gone. No trace of it. Not even a wisp of smoke. Just the roar. Now silence. Red lights. Scramble. As I strap myself in, I think of the new boy, ghastly for him to witness that before his first trip. Surging from the ground, passing over the blackened plumb line of debris, I find the horror of that pilot's fiery death obliterated by the sensation of pure, smooth flight. The earth slides away and my companions sweep into position each side of me. Hello, Woody. Exile leader, airborne. Hello, Dennis. As much height as you can into the sun. Sun in the blue, no good. Climb under cloud. Westwards, under pathways of cloud, 10,000 feet, 13,000 feet, out over the sea, turning back, back across the island, traversing cloud. Tiny aircraft, high above. 109s, two lots of four. They've seen us turning towards the sun, are they? I'll move farther over to my left. They'll have to cross the cloud to attack us. They'll be clearly visible. XR leader, 109s behind at five o'clock. All right, I can see them. They're coming round, manoeuvring round behind us, going to attack while they still have height advantage. Would like to avoid combat, don't want to brawl, want to keep cohesion and gain height, want to catch bombers later. They are going to attack, must keep cohesion, must keep cohesion. How about defensive circle? Years out of date, but Huns may have forgotten counteraction. Aircraft line astern, exiles line astern, go. 109's bewildered, drawing off a bit. No, they're not. I throw the squadron onto the turn. They're coming down now, exiles. Just tighten up the turn and stay put. Hello, chaps. Woody here. There's a big party, 40 plus, 30 miles away, heading south towards Grand Harbour. 30 miles. Just time to cope with 109s first. Stupid Germans joining our circle. Two just in front of me. Throttle wide, creeping into position behind them. Turn pressure pushes me hard into seat. 109 nearer, 300 yards. Gentle follow through. Deflection in front of him. No hurry, quite easy. Gently does it. My aircraft shudders as machine gun bullets and cannon shells stream out towards him. Why doesn't he catch fire? Blow up, disintegrate. Another burst. Tilted enemy flies steadily on. Blast my bad shooting. Some error. Too much deflection? Not enough? Damned if I know. God, I'm hot. Got to get him. Closer still. 109's behind! A shrill cry. I flung my Spitfire violently in the opposite direction. Fool that I am. Some nervous reaction. We'd all have been perfectly safe in the turn. Who the hell called out like that? All my Spitfires are following me out of the circle. 109's above in clear silhouette, but we're moving into the blue now. For God's sake, stay under the cloud! That shrill, panicky fellow again. Shut up! He's down right, though. 
We'd like to stay under white. We've got to go out into the blue, out into sun. Must surprise approaching bombers. My spits in single file. Crazy. Keep turning. Black 109s, yellow noses, low overhead. Pulling up again. Ugly, ugly. Must keep turning. Must stay in blue. Length and turn slightly right. St. Paul's Bay below us. Waves lapping against rocks down there. Resting pilots must be watching. It's got to be good. Where the hell are the 109s? Must keep turning. Hello, Woody. Where are the bombers now? Practically on the doorstep. Dennis, you should be able to see them. Angels 1-7. Woody's voice is loud but remote. On the northern horizon, the blue sea meets the sky in a belt of white haze. Suddenly, against the white, three tiny dots. Why only three? Must keep turning. Where are those 109s? Approaching dots under my right wing. Dots reappearing. Certainly only three bombers. JU-88s? Keep turning. Bombers behind tail. Turning. Bombers on the other side now. Nearer. Level out. Check sun position. Finger up. Shadow slightly left. Keep over to the right. Must stay invisible. This attack must be perfect. Blurs round the bombers. 109s in close escort. Bombers under wing. Tighten circle a bit. Must stay invisible. Bombers reappearing. Hell of a strong escort. 30, no, 40 109s flying in twos and fours. Bombers behind tail. Must go in quickly. Enemy force reappearing. Ideal position. This is it. And we go now, exiles. Each man cover the man in front. Destroy the bombers first. Straight in and straight out. With the 88s parading past in Vic formation, I'm diving fast onto the tail of the nearest. Black against the blue sea. Black against the white houses of Valletta. 109s alive to our attack. No, still flying steadily. Harbour barrage, shell bursts. Red and black, friendly shells fired by our side. Bomber growing larger, backwards towards me. Gunsight spot on his port wing, 200 yards on his port engine. Fire now! Quick white flashes along the wing. One, two, three, four on the engine. A great burst of black smoke gushing black. Swerving right and tilting. Enemy fighters? No. Over my left shoulder, the sky filled with shell bursts. Spitfires behind other bombers. 109s breaking up too late from their tidy formation. Nearest spit sliding up behind my burning bomber. Strikes all down the bomber's fuselage. Strikes along near wing. Starboard engine splits into flame. Bomber dropping below, tumbling downwards, pyre of blackness. Our machines are being refuelled. Happy irks pass brimming cans of petrol to their comrades standing on the wings. Sunlight glitters on wrinkled metal foil as cans are tipped. They're flung aside, empty into clanging, banging heaps. Snake belts of pointed shells and bullets are loaded into almost empty ammunition boxes. A smoke pool hangs over Takali in the distance. For the 88 that one of my boys and I have just shot down fell close to the perimeter track there. Both other bombers fell into the sea. The new boy standing next to me is highly excited, although he quite forgot to fire his guns. None of our planes has been damaged. Refueling is completed. Back on readiness. Lights from G-Shelter. Off we go again. In our second flight this afternoon, preliminary skirmishes with 109s upset my positioning for a surprise attack. In order to get at the bombers, which were about to dive on our last repair shops at Calafrana, I had to lead my boys straight across in front of 30 or 40 109s in close escort on the bombers. With the Vic of 388s tipped up big and black in front of my windscreen, I prayed hard for I expected we would have casualties. As I settled onto the tail of the nearest bomber, I was aware of a 109 creeping into position behind me. I fired a steady three-second burst, hitting the bomber all the time, watching cannon shells and bullets ripping into its black wing, a cascade of flashing white sparks just in board of his port engine. Then, braking violently left, flashed past the attacking 109 astonishingly close, saw its bright red propeller spinner, oval-shaped like an elongated egg with a rippling highlight, rotating in strangely slow motion. The German pilot jerked his head up to look at me, then opened sky in sudden panic as other 109s fastened on my tail. 
did an aileron turn downwards, pulling fiercely up again. Saw the bomber dropping from the dogfight above, its port wing, where my cannon shells had torn into it, had snapped off and was fluttering high above, while the rest of the machine, quite flat with flame gushing from its broken wing stump, was gyrating round and round, a gigantic Catherine wheel. 109's on me again. We had a hell of a fight to get home. We have driven back to Naxar, and I am tired out as the CO greets us in the bar. I tell him that my boys and I have destroyed five JU-88s, severely damaged another, and shot down two 109s without loss today. He chuckles at our success, but he refers to that damned scoreboard again. I still haven't painted any swastikas on it, nor do I know what to paint there. I'm bitterly angry and full of distress. I need some encouragement, and so do my boys. I thought our successes today would have helped us a bit, but our efforts have been thrown back in our faces. For instance, the JU-88 that I've just destroyed has been credited to the Akak gunners. Credited to them despite the wings snapping off just where I hit it, despite the rear gunner who bailed out by parachute confirming that I, the Spitfire leader, shot him down. Not only that, but the earlier 88, the one that I and Ingram flying the Spitfire behind me, destroyed after circling above St Paul's Bay, the one that fell on Takali, it has been credited to a Takali pilot. Officially credited to him, despite the fact that the CO and B-flight pilots watched the whole actions from St Paul's Bay, confirming everything we did, then went over to Takali to take photographs and bring back squadron trophies. I should be ashamed of my distress. People say, what does it matter who shoots down the enemy plane so long as they never fly again? But it does matter. If I can be blamed for things going wrong, I want some kind of credit when things go right. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.